Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Thank you, Mr. VoiceOver Man. It is Brendan here with Mark, vetgurus.com. Go there, have a look around, come back and listen to the podcast. It is Friday the 1st of November, episode 107, and Mark, well, let it fly. Tell me about your fantastic holiday in paradise and what you got up to and all the amazing photos you took. Well, it was in paradise, Brendan. We were in um, Indonesia. We are in uh, the south, eastern corner of Sulawesi, the... the uh, I think it's the province of Wakatobi, which is an acronym of a couple of the islands in the archipelago, and it's just a beautiful part of the world where there's... Is that near Wakamali? No, no, nowhere near Wakamali. Okay. Um, no, Wakamali. <laughs> Sorry to retract. I don't even know what to say to you. It's a, <laughs> it's a beautiful uh, area of tropical, pristine, remote tropical uh, um, uh, reef, um, coral reef, um, lots of uh, wall diving, lots of... We were diving th- either three or four times a day for the two weeks we were there. Um, we uh, did a few night dives um, and uh, invariably saw uh, new things, new species, or... Um, uh, bloody unusual behaviours of species we'd seen before. They only have two two species of turtles frequently, hawksbills and green turtles. We saw those guys quite frequently. Lots of crates, lots of um, banded sea crates, which are bloody entertaining snakes to see underwater. They are um, notoriously deadly, but notoriously... Um, uninclined to bite underwater. So um, you, most people who get bitten are fishing around on the coral flats um, in low tide and the snakes take offence to being bumped or kicked around then. But underwater, they, um, they're, they're, they're pretty happy for us to get close and take photos and film, so it was good to see them. Not to mention, you know, the usual array of tropical things, Brendan. Yes, well... I'm jealous as usual, Mark, and I did notice I was reading the travel section of one of the papers this week, and I think it had the top 10 or the top 20 places, most beautiful places in the world to visit for 2020 or something like that, and it did have Sulawesi on there, Mark, so you've, you're ahead of the pack as usual, <laughs> um, ahead of the pack. Well, I haven't been up to anything near as fun and exciting and as relaxing, Mark. I was, um, I've was i just run inside from frantically trying to finish putting together a, a dual barrel compost bin, Mark. Oh, um, my goodness. I've, I've tried to go, um, um, and he keeps saying, oh, we should have a, we have a little bit of a, 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 a well, a poo poo pile in the backyard where the, where where I collect all the dog poo um and and my, my usual um mention to any is I'm I'm off to do a poo run and I head in the backyard um, with my little shovel and stick and, and collect the poo um I find it quite zen actually collecting dog poo from the backyard um, um not that um anybody have feel that is unusual for me to do something <laughs> strange um and I I then put that in a, a big pile of uh, 
lawn clippings and you know turn it over and it slowly decomposes that area um that um poo because as you can imagine two greyhounds produce a lot of poo um but yeah and he keeps saying to me we should um sort out a little a little compost bin or something that we can use to put the scraps of the garden um the the vegetable waste um from the kitchen as well as you know cardboard and shade um you know, shavings and and what lawn clippings and all those sort of things that we we can then put on the garden because Annie loves doing her gardening, as you know. So I went down to our Bunnings store, so here in Australia, a big 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 brand store, and um, did a bit of research online and found the um, probably the most expensive bin you could um, purchase, um, sort of a, a dual rotating one with a handle. Um, it looks like a big, well, it looks like. Basically, it looks like a big keg mark um, on the side, and um, then I got I, I, so I put it all out on the deck this morning. You'll love this, and opened up the manual and and, and opened up the huge cardboard box and um, put all the parts together. And the manual looked a fair few pages, and then it said uh, you can get online to look at the company in video of how to assemble it all. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. It's it's a bit like doing an IKEA project. And at the very first line, I think, of the manual said, um, put in the compost bin will take you, if everything goes to plan, two to four hours to put together. <laughs> I thought, oh, my goodness. Um, so I, I did half of it before lunch. I had a bit of a break and then I've, I've just finished it all off. It, it probably didn't take quite the four hours. It probably took an hour and a half, actually, by the time I sort of potted around with it. Um, and I was, I, well, I had my little earbuds in and I was listening to a few other podcasts, Mark, as I was, I was doing it. So it has been constructed and it's sitting in the backyard just waiting for some waste to be added to it, which we'll probably do a little bit later this afternoon. Well, that's, the and, most, that's a really, uh, really productive use of time, Brendan. And um, so tell me, is it the sort of uh, compost, like it, it's... Um, it's on a frame, I assume, that has wheels, and so that's how you turn the tumbling action around. No, you don't turn it that way. Have you got it hooked up? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Have you got yes. It? No. It, it has. <laughs> it ha- well, I should. Um, I, I could automate it, couldn't I? But no. Yeah, it has a frame and it has a handle on the side of if if it's like a barrel on its side. Yeah. Um, it has a handle on a ratchet type handle on the side of the barrel, and you just just rotate it quite easily. Um, um, and it has a little locking mechanism on the on the little ratchet to stop it going backwards as you rotate it. It's quite an ingenious little setup there, and two compartments, so you you fill up one, and when that's full, you you, you um, start filling the second one, and um, just wait for the first one to mature, and then you can. Um, you pull open the sliding little doors, and out pops your poop or your uh, or your compost. Um, in, and you just put it in a little bucket or a tray underneath it, and away you go. Put it on the garden. So yeah, excellent. So hopefully, one I will use it, um, and two, um, it will do the job. So yeah, I've just got to get the the formula correct. Um, the, the percentage of browns. To greens is what they talk about. So browns being paper and cardboard and, and leaves and sticks and things like that, um, which is a greater percentage that you put in there. And the greens are all your vegetable leftovers and that, which are your wet sort of stuff that you only want about 30 to 40% or something like that, I think. And then you just supposedly rotate it 
just just spin the wheel. It reminded me of that old show here in Australia. Our overseas listeners won't remember Chuck Lotto. Remember, um, remember Chuck Lotto, Mark. Um, just rotated um, a few times a week, or maybe once a day or so. So yeah, so that's what I've been doing today. So yeah, in one respect, fairly productive, but in another, it, yeah, it took a took a fair while there. So probably did take just as long as I has put in together an IKEA project, Mark. Um, and um, I was quite impressed because the, the, the company that makes this, well, they're Australian-made companies, that was good, um, local company, and they provided a few extra nuts and bolts and screws and they even provided a spanner. Are you um, sure? Are you sure so they provided extras, Brendan? I did. Well, well, uh, oh, actually, yeah. I was, I was wondering why one side was sticking out a little bit. Maybe it does need another little. Yeah, good point. Then, I guess. <laughs> no, they did mention at the start of the manual. We provide a few extra ones because you may may misplace them. So yeah, so it was um, yeah. So there you go. That was um, a lot more boring than um, what um, you've been doing. Swimming with um, swimming with all sorts of aquatic. Organisms, yeah. So, yeah. So there you go. So, well, we were going to have a review this week, but we've decided to wait one week because, um, well, you'll know next week. Why? You'll know next week. Why? Um, next week. Yes. Explain why. We're, yes. But it's worth it. Yes. Believe me, it'll be worth it. Will, it will be. Well, probably worth it. Yeah, it will. Um, okay, so let's jump into the news story, Mark, because this week's topic, as usual, probably will go on for a while, but I reckon it's a fantastic topic, Mark, so great choice for this one, and we've stolen the topic from an article, but before we do that, I want to get into my first news story, Mark, and this is brilliant. I love this. I love this, and, and you know, sometimes there's some bad ideas, and sometimes there's some good ideas, and sometimes there's some brilliant ideas, and this is a brilliant idea, and I'm planning on stealing this, Mark, for the students that I teach, both at the university and and the um, and the veterinary nurses, Mark, and that is um, using a cardboard box, you know. And this is thinking inside the box, isn't it, Mark? Um, rather than outside the box with this one. And this is a school um, that has apologised, um, and I don't know why they're apologising. Um, after pictures emerged of pupils wearing cardboard boxes on their heads to prevent cheating in an exam. So students at this school, in, which was in India, um, and there's some photos, and we'll have a link to this. You must you must go to vetgurus.com and this episode and, and click on this link because the, the photos are fantastic um, because um, they decided, Mark, that the whole idea was um, the um, – it was implemented on an on an experimental basis, according to the junior college administrator. Um, he said pupils had consented to wear in the boxes, and even brought, some of them brought their own cartons. So, so basically, the idea was that you'd literally put a cardboard box on top of your head, and you cut out the front section where your face is to avoid you looking at the student next to you and cheating. Um, and so you'll see with the photos that there's several several students. That actually, there's a couple of students there without um, cardboard boxes on their head. They're probably the ones that passed the exam, <laughs> I'd say, Mark. And um, I think a couple of students have chosen some quite 
brightly coloured cardboard boxes there. There's a bright yellow one there. Um, good on them. Well, actually, there's three bright yellow ones there. And, um, yeah, and they've got a calculator next to them there. So I presume it was some sort of science exam or mathematics exam there. But um, I reckon it's a fantastic technique, Mark. I don't see what's wrong with it. Um, I don't think it's particularly humiliating, especially if all the rest of the students have a cardboard box on the head as well. What are your thoughts? <laughs> what are my thoughts? Um, I, I actually think much the same as you. I, I do these. Um, there does seem to be uh, a series of um, online um, images, online themes, where people become um, outraged. I know we are a little bit of an outrage machine here at uh, Vet Gurus, and we're regularly jumping on our soapbox and decrying various. Um, you know, issues around the world. But, geez, I do think there's a line in the sand and and getting horribly upset about this um, and using words like humiliating and inhumane, um, I don't know, sometimes it's easy to take these things out of context. The Indian school system is plagued by um, problems with, uh, with cheating um, and so trialling something which seems to be as relatively innocuous and maybe even a little bit funny. I know you did your hardest to make it really funny, Brendan, but um, it, I don't know. I don't, it doesn't really strike me as that bad. I, maybe I'm, I don't know, I don't know. I, I... Yes, there's there's certainly worse things in life and, yes, I did try to be fairly flippant with it, and it would be humiliating. I think it 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 it, it certainly shouldn't be done, and they realise that. Um, but gee, I don't think there's any there's any anything wrong with trying to think inside or outside the box, Mark. Um, and we know, and and you've had probably some contact with it that the issue with cheating and um, in universities and school, and you know the other big ones, plagiarism with with. Um, with essays as well and, and, and projects. Um, and actually another article I was late reading in the paper this, this morning, Mark, was, oh, I can't remember what country it was, but it was a, a, a university research person had been sacked. Actually, I think it was here in Australia, Mark, um, and um, I think it was an engineering department or, or something similar, and he'd published something like 120 papers over the last two years or three years, and most of the papers that he published were just rehashes of of two or three papers he'd done previously. Um, so he published some slight variations in lots of different journals, and he finally got found out and he was sacked from the department. So, you know, we... I think it's a constant battle with with the universities and um, with with the cheating of students, and I think the pressure's so high on a lot of the students these days that they resort to things like that they shouldn't be doing. Um, and I know that so my, my girls, Sophie and Jane, have have had to submit essays and articles where where they automatically churn them through these. Um, plagiarism sort of reporting software programs. I don't know whether you've seen them, Mark, or had any experience with them. Um, and I find them quite fascinating the way they do it as well. Um, and even last week, Sophie just had a um, one of her, um, I think, biology um, practicals. Um, um, an email went round to all the students saying, um, please be aware that we've had some students who are, who are pre-writing up their answers for their 
biology prac, if it was a biology one, um, before they're practical because they each run the same prac and they have 600 students in the whole course. So the pracs run, you know, several several times over the week or two. Um, so those who run the prac the first day don't get to, you know, do the experiment um, be, before the others or they do do it before the others so they don't get a chance to mention the prac to the other students. But some of the other students sit in the practical the next day day or week or whatever, um, get the answers and, 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 and sort of write up, you know, their experimental design and the results even before the practical started because they're examined before they leave the room. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, it is a form of cheating. So they got there was a big email that sent, was sent around to everybody. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's something that people are always trying to look out for there. But, yeah, um, you know, Getting back to basics, using a cardboard box, gee, I, I just that's love awesome. it. Mark, I'm sorry. I, yeah, it's fantastic. So do you think that, that's do you my think, news. Article. Just on the final point on that news article, do you think there would end up being, yeah. you know how like in um, Californian schools they, you know, there's the no uniforms and so there's always this race to be the trendiest dresser or dressing a certain group. Do you think people would um, have particular styles of boxes that would be more acceptable? I know there's those few yellow ones. Um, yeah, so they, I'm surprised that they didn't because it's so colourful in India when I was there. It was, you know, so much colour everywhere with clothing, with everything, that we, that they didn't end up, you know, putting put in all sorts of shades of colour on their, on their boxes, yeah. Um, I think the one they put on me would be one looking like a dunce <laughs> hat, Mark, um, if I had one on me. But, yes, so... Yeah, that's my fun news. Sorry, what what have you got, Mark? I'm I'm talking about now. I've pronunciation problem. I have Brendan. You know, I regularly fail to pronounce things correctly. Is it Batesian mimicry or Batesian mimicry? Uh, let me jump. Keep talking. I'll find. I'll, I've got to. I need to get up your <laughs> article. Sorry. So, well, um, the article is um, a uh, an. Uh, a note, I suppose, about a particular toad, the Congolese giant toad, um, an animal found exclusively in the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, which has been rather rather um, cruelly, I would have thought, described as a triple cheeseburger-sized prize. Um, <laughs> um, it, it, uh, it has an un, a particular strategy um, for not becoming, um, well, the triple triple cheeseburger-sized prize for other forest foraging predators. Um, and the trick that it has is uh, to be, turn itself into the spitting image of one of the region's most deadly snakes, um, the Gaboon Viper. And the article shows some wonderful pictures of the the uh, motley pattern on the back of the toad and the arrangement of uh, black markings and the body position the toad puts itself in to mimic um, the uh, head of the gaboon viper. And this, of course, the tactic of, uh, of uh, a typically inoffensive animal pretending to be some much deadlier species um, is referred to as, um, as uh, you're about to tell me, but Batesian. 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 Well, ba- well, it's, it's named after uh, yeah. uh, English naturalist Henry Bates, but I've always pronounced it Batesian, but that may just be, yes. um, I don't know. Um, we'll, we'll call it Batesian. Well, if, 
Well, we can we can invite our listeners to email us at vetgurus at gmail.com, Mark, and um, um, phonetically spell out the pronunciation of Batesian slash Batesian. Mimicry. Where a harmless species avoids predators by pretending to be a dangerous or toxic one. It's a common strategy in, in the insect world, um, but not so common in vertebrates, though it does uh, occur particularly in... Um, it's known to happen in reptiles. Um, but the other thing that's um, interesting is that um, the, the toad in question um, also has some behavioural aspects to its mimicry. So it does, under threat, um, arrange its body and puff in a certain way um, that, um, that get, makes the impersonation even more... Um, sincere more authentic um so yeah it's um it's a really interesting thing um and i wonder i just wonder how successful it is um the researchers from texas the researchers are um they do talk about um uh, the fact that um research into this area of uh of biology is particularly difficult because obviously it would take um, some form of experiment which involves stressing the animal to induce its mimicry. I mean, it's also fascinating to contemplate, you know, at what point in evolution did the toad go, ah, you know, I'm going to mate with that particular male or female toad who looks a little bit more like a snake than any other and then begin the process of the the evolution towards a... Um, increasingly accurate mimic of a very dangerous animal. Are, are these things are, are very, very interesting to contemplate, Brendan. Yes, it is an excellent article, and I think well, they do talk about you did briefly sort of hint at it that it that it also does a a very very interesting hiss um, that, that that supposedly mimics the. Um, mimics the snake as well so they're fairly confident that it, it it is it has sort of evolved to mimic the snake because it has the hiss as well as the the looks as well there for it so yeah so it's a as they talk about in the in the article it's the ultimate thespian yeah. mark um nature's ultimate thespian. well not just a hiss brendan but it also the um the viper tends to raise its head and hiss um, yes. just before it bites yes. but also the viper has a particular location in the forest that it tends to prefer and this is the same location like you know the i suppose the success of uh batesian mimicry depends on the um subject being convinced that that is in fact the dangerous animal and if you were mimicking something but not even in the same space that it would normally be that would lessen the the benefit, I'd imagine. So the fact that they just hang out where the snakes would be, um, that also adds to the authenticity of the, the mimicry. Yes, and, well, it's just like me. I pretend I hang around in vet clinics, Mark, and I pretend to be a real, pretend to be a real vet, and um, for, I tend to fool most of the people most of the time, I think. Um, or maybe I don't. Who knows? Okay, so let's jump into our, our main topic, Mark. And you selected this one, and it's based on an article that you found. So I might get, I think it was from the Association of Zookeepers, was it? Um, and it's about environmental enrichment for reptiles. And it was a great little summary of the 
the different things and aspects and, and, and products and, and just simple things you can do to enhance the environment for reptiles. So do you want to kick I it off? I do want mate? to kick it off, Brendan. And I do I wanted to um I think that you know in contemplating the topics that we can talk about, there there are specific health issues that I like, you know, that are reasonably um, interesting and I like to share with the people that like to listen to us. But I also think these um, husbandry-related issues, particularly in our exotic animals, we know that the husbandry plays a great um, uh, predisposing role in general health. Um, and I also think um, they play such, particularly environmental enrichment, play such a significant role in quality of life um, that I think it's a really, really important issue, and um, and I love this issue, this uh, article. It um, it's just an article of suggested guidelines or um, issues to think of for reptile enrichment. It is by the um, zookeepers uh, aazk.org, um, and they do have a huge amount of useful information across a whole range of topics. But this one just struck me as being really useful. And it's interesting because I suppose I'm a bit simplistic when it comes to this stuff. I usually just focus on um, uh, uh, on well things to make them do things. Um, so I suppose basically I'm thinking about um, various forms of enclosure furniture is probably the first thing that um, that leaps to mind. But this article does touch on a great number of other things um, that. Are that, are, that aren't just enclosure furniture, um, but also uh, leads us back to enclosure design and many of the other things we talk about um, that mimic their natural environment and allow them to express natural behaviours that help them to maintain homeostasis. So I think what we should do is just, yeah, it's, I think it's such a good article, the way it's, way it's presented and, and logically goes through the types of environmental enrichment, Mark, I think we'll just follow through the article and we will have a link to the article um, on at vetgurus.com and um, a direct link to it where you can download it. So, yeah. So the first, well, that, I think they had three or three or four sections, three sections, didn't they, Mark? The first one was the exhibit or the enclosure. So let's kick off with that one. And the first one, Mark, is perching. What do you want to talk about that one? What does perching mean? Well, <laughs> perching um that's what birds do um <laughs> it's mainly it's, it's when we talk about perching we're mainly talking about those um you know the branches and um things that we uh, place in there they're they're pathways um that are not on the ground and they're particularly valuable for obviously arboreal species um, and they massively increase the surface surfaces available for an animal to uh, exhibit its normal behaviour. In particular, the one that's really useful to us in a health sense um, is thermoregulation, that uh, it does provide a, num a vastly increased number of locations where um, species, reptile species, can bask, where they can rest at precisely the sort of um, temperature um, uh, that's going to help them to maintain normal uh, thermoregulatory homeostasis. Um, and so I think... Uh, the key thing I like to talk about um, is that it's very important to provide um, uh, um, both uh, 
things in a vertical sense and things in a horizontal sense that are relatively rigid and not going to, you know, they need to be very, very uh, fixed in position. Even a modestly sized reptile is going to be big enough that it can, uh, you know, push something that's just finely balanced over and, and either injure itself or damage the enclosure. Um, so rigidly placed um, branches or rocks um, that uh, create vertical and horizontal basking sites. I think it's the, the object when we talk about perching. Yes, and I think it, 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 it goes into a little bit more detail about creating both vertical and horizontal perches there, Mark, and, and also encouraging them to move around by not having each perch at the optimal temperatures there so the reptile then has to continuously it won't just continuously bask in one area that it's that it will then search around for other areas and then also the obvious one that we always talk about a lot mark is periodically changing the perch or the basking um, um, spot for them so it stimulates a healthy increase in movement as the article talks about and the animal explores the new enriched environment so yeah um, I don't think you can over overlook and, and I think it's a good one to start with because it's such a such a simple one to explain to clients is provide move things around um, provide different stimulation for the perches and and also with the substrates which is about number three here um, or number four on the list mark is the types of types of perches but I'm getting ahead of myself the the second one is mist in and this is one that I don't typically recommend to clients mark do you well I think no it's not and um, I think that uh, that the general principle that for uh, reptiles or amphibians that uh, that do like a um, an environment that's that ha- has a degree of humidity, um, that having uh, misting or maybe some other form of um, uh, allowing water vapor to get into the air, a, a water feature or um, a, a waterfall or something like that. Um, those structures definitely start to create the concept of a humidity gradient, and I know we've talked about that in terms of um, in terms of uh, uh, failure to shed. Normally, um, there's a number of skin diseases where inappropriate humidity plays a, a critical role. So, um, we're often banging on about the the uh, concept of a thermal gradient, and I think um, that it is a, a good thing for us to. Um, to contemplate a similar humidity gradient and part of um, of that may be helped by some form of um, misting or uh, um, a water feature or something that creates humidity in one part that's not in another. I think it's always really important whenever we have an enclosure that has a... Yes, and there's certain species, isn't there, that really enjoy, seem to enjoy the misting and the classic one there. And it's probably the only species I routinely recommend to clients. I should be doing it with more species. It's the bitter dragons, Mark. Um, they seem to seem to thoroughly enjoy some some bitter dragons or a fair number of them um, having a spray body, bottle and, and directly misting the dragon or just above the dragon and letting that mist um, land on them. And I often recommend that to clients as a, as a method to encourage a bitter dragon who's partially anorexic or anorexic to wheat, Mark. Have, have, have you done that? It's, it's one of the tricks, I think. That, And my theory, I've got a theory, Mark, here you go. You'd love <laughs> this. Um, um, 
My theory is that, um, especially with the desert species, subspecies a bit, or species a bit of dragon, is that after it rains, all the insects are out. Um, so that's um, an indicator for them that it's time to get out there and try and try and find some food. So misting or simulating a, a period of rain with a bit of dragon really fires them up and and, and sets off that um, process of them thinking, oh, it's time to feed. Um, so that's my theory, Mark. What oh, do you think? I, I, Later, no, crap? I like your theory. I think there's a good deal of common sense that goes into it. And I think, um, but I think it's also worth mentioning that um, uh, it is a species by species thing. And and uh, bearded dragons are a good example of um, you know hand spraying and not leaving them in an environment that's uh, that's constantly moist, um, misting them, uh, you know, two or three times a week rather than having a permanent feature in their enclosure that's likely to, you know, there's individual variation and matching it to the species is really important. Absolutely. And related to that, which we'll touch on, is water features. And, yes, the ideal enclosure would well, again, depending on where that species naturally occurs, um, a lot of them would include pools or water cascades or or um, waterfalls, for instance. And, and I do remember I had a, a very good client who had several crocodilian species, Mark, and he converted a, a large, his garage, um, where he usually used to keep his cars in, to this amazing, almost like a like a, um, a little sandbank and, and then a waterfall and he spent literally thousands if not tens of thousands of dollars to provide this amazing sort of um, little oasis for this crocodile and even the pond area um, had deep and, and shallow sections so it would have different water temperatures so we'd have a water gradient with um, temperature gradient within the water there, Mark. Um, so, yes, yeah, so the ideal would be trying to simulate those things. But the, the, I think the difficulty with having um, something like that with most clients is the cost, Mark. Um, you know, they're always they're always thinking, gee, it, it, it is going to cost a hell of a lot of money to set up um, a, a water feature um, for my for my reptile. And I think we unfortunately have very few clients who will go to the effort and certainly the expense of doing that. And I think your client is a good example of those, the, you know, the highly committed client who goes all the way. But um, as we were saying, there's lots and lots of things that you can do that don't involve um, uh, huge expense um, and take a little bit of effort but also a little bit of thought um, and just um, by contemplating, you know, whether it's a hand sprayer on the edge of the enclosure that you use two or three times a week um, or humidity boxes or uh, however we arrange those things, a little bit of thought um, can make a big, big difference um, uh, to the quality of life and, and also the health in turn of our uh, reptilian um, uh, patients and pets. Yes. Now, talk to me about substrates, Mark. I knew you were going to flick this one to me. Substrates are <laughs> one of the, um, well, like most controversial topics, they stimulate a lot of discussion. And um, and I think the starting point I always have when we talk about substrates is there is no perfect substrate. Um, and uh, I think that You've got to make some choices about the species that you're working with, um, the health issues they have, the appearance of the enclosure that you want them to be in, um, and then it's that working your way through that whole matrix 
um, will lead you to the substrate that's going to work best in your circumstance. But there's none that are absolutely free of risk and provide the perfect environment. Um, and you have to take into account the risk that any of them present. But I think the key thing is um, if you are... Uh, you, if you select the substrates wisely, then that allows them to, uh, you know, w express their natural, engage in their natural behaviours. Um, and the classic one for me is the, the Aspidites species we have in Australia here, the black-headed python and the woma. They're um, uh, fossorial species. They live on the, the surface of the ground and, and tend to um, dig into leaf litter and, and um, burrow burrow around just on the surface of the of the um, the ground and so um, substrate that allows them to do that um, will make them feel much much more at home rather than a completely bare enclosure with some branches and so while I think um, substrate is a huge topic I think it is worth mentioning here because it is one that allows us to um, encourage them to express those natural behaviors. Yes and it's always that that balance, isn't it, Mark? Because we might have a, a species, again, getting back to, say, juvenile bearded dragons, where initially um, during that period where they've a new owner, for example, has purchased some young juvenile bearded dragons, um, we may be recommending something simple like, like our paper sort of substrates initially because we may be concerned about coccidiosis or other disease processes going on there and we do want to keep that enclosure fairly clean. So it's that balance between with all of this environmental enrichment between having an enclosure that's like a hospital enclosure that's sterile but but no good at all for environmental enrichment and having the full-on many thousands of dollars enclosure, like I was mentioned with the crocodile owner, um, but potentially a bit of a nightmare to clean and disinfect as well. Um, and the other issue with the natural substrates, Mark, is, is, is the, the, difficult, the, the hassle of... of those females that need to lay eggs and they don't want to because they don't have anywhere to lay those eggs. So it's providing, decreasing the risk of depositing their eggs and becoming egg bound. So it's providing a substrate that's that's natural-like where they can dig and, and potter around in there and, and deposit those eggs, Mark, because the classic there would be our Chelonian species, wouldn't it? If they haven't got an area where they can sort of dig and feel like they can lay those eggs, then then they're going to retain them. What about, um, what, just quickly while we're touching on substrates, one of the big things that oh, when I talk about it to people that they are um, concerned about is the likelihood of them um, ingesting substrates and, and becoming impacted. Um, what do you say to people about substrates on that topic? Yeah, gee, that's opening a can of worms, isn't it, Mark? Um, yeah, which substrates are good and which aren't bad. And, and I've... I've you know, over the years I've had reptiles that I've had to open up and perform surgery on for blockages for lots of different variations of ty or types of substrates, Mark. And, yeah, it's a balance between selecting a product that you think may be safer than than product number two, but you also need to select the client as well. Um, I know I haven't answered the question yet, Oil and Sec, and that's... Um, um, 
to a certain extent judging your client and deciding, look, this person um, has no idea and they just will not listen to what I'm talking about. So let's just keep it keep it basic with them. Or we have a client who's who's quite committed and is willing to listen and to monitor their 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 reptile. And then we might consider using a another substrate that's potentially a bit more environmentally enriching, but maybe have a slightly increased risk of being ingested and causing a blockage. I mean, generally, I. I my my go-to substrate that I recommend for most of the reptiles um, is is recycled newspaper cat litter type um, products, Mark, because um, I can't remember the last time I've had a problem with, with a reptile accidentally ingesting that that hasn't um, just passed through the reptile. And I think the other key point I usually make, I, I, I should do it to 100% of the um clients but I sometimes forget is to suggest to them that when they are feeding for instance a snake um, don't put this the, the food product directly on the substrate um, that may be ingested accidentally so the ideal there would be put a little mat or a piece of um, um, wood um, down first or having a separate feeding enclosure that doesn't have any substrate on it um, and we'll talk about environmental enrichment for the feeding process shortly won't we mark um to to decrease or completely eliminate the chance of that snake then accidentally ingesting the the substrate that is stuck to the um, thought out rat or the mouse um and same story with the say the insectivorous um, um species of reptiles like some of the lizards that are running around trying to um, pick up some crickets or earthworms or other insects, Mark. I, I try to encourage clients that when they're doing the feeding process, they put a, a mat or some sort of plastic um, mat down um, first over the substrate and then they put their food bowl over that and then they take the mat away again um, later. I think you're exactly right. And I think one of the points I always try to make is that um, uh, substrates leading to impactions for example is not a simple straight line um, thing that the reptiles that have those problems uh, tend to have other problems as well that make it much more likely they're overweight they're inert they don't um, move around the enclosure enough and so all the things we're talking about uh, in enriching their environment and encouraging movement they're likely to lessen the potential problem of impaction in any case. So I think there are things that um, keepers need to learn and be aware of with substrate. Um, I, as I said before, I don't think there's any perfect one. And I, like you, use a lot of the, the recycled newspaper kitty litter. Um, but even that, has uh, it's not perfect and it does have potential for some risk and, um, and managing it in just the way you suggested um, is a wise thing to do. Yes, and even all you know, all or all of the all of the substrates can potentially be an issue. And no matter whether it's labelled as reptile specific substrate, um, I think we have to be careful and advise clients appropriately based on the species involved and and the client involved as well. So cover or, or hide areas, Mark, is the next next environmental enrichment aspect that we want to chat about um what are your recommendations with cover or well, this hides? is an interesting one brendan because um my advice is have a lot of them and i think um this is one area of this particular document that because it's a zoo focused one and trying to assist in design of enclosures that uh exhibits 
um, it does it does have the constraint that um, that that uh, the keepers feel the need to have the animals um, visible to visitors. Whereas I think in a captive situation, while there is some pressure to be able to see them all the time, um, where where we don't have visitors that we need to show them off to every day and we are much more accommodating of their need to um, to have a refuge and be away from direct vision. Um, and I think uh, that's a really, really important thing. Um, so things like uh, positioning plants or um, uh, um, uh, pieces of wood, um, those sorts of, uh, you know, the driftwood, those sorts of things placed in such a way that they create... Um, uh, real or apparent shelters that they divide the enclosure up into, um, I often use the word to clients that I try and divide um, enclosures up into rooms so that the, the, uh, the animals can feel that they're secluded in a particular area. Um, the design along those lines uh, really does make a big difference to the quality of life of the animal that if they feel they have a refuge, if they feel they have a way that they can get away, um, their stress levels are markedly reduced, I think, Brendan. Yes, and it, it makes some good points in the article there, Mark, about the um, importance of having these hide areas or cover areas uh, where we're providing not only um, different, well, basically micro-environments, aren't we? So we're having different areas that have different temperature zones. We're also having different hide or cover areas that have different light zones as well, which is one that, you know, I tend to forget about. So there's some areas that are a little bit, have, have less light and other areas that have more light. So again, the, the reptile then can, can then select depending on how it's feeling at what particular time of the day or night or what species they have, whether they want some area with less light or, or more light or less humidity or, or more humidity to hide in or, or slightly higher or lower temperature. So, yeah, there's a great summary in the in the article there, Mark. Um, the next one I'll, I'll cover, Mark, and it's just a quick one, and it's meant it, it, it's a topic of the enclosure size and, and basically the bigger the better um, for several reasons there. The obvious one is there that we don't want them confined in a smaller area that's a bit like a prison, but the larger the area... The other important points to remember are that the less chance and, and that we're going to get a build-up of, 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 of bacteria and, um, um, yeah, sure, the cleaning may be a little bit more prolonged or, or time-consuming there, but the, the bacteria build-up or load will decrease with the, um, with the size of the enclosure. And also we can have lots of those rooms as you put it that's a great idea mark i never really mentioned that to clients about dividing a reptile enclosure into rooms you must have been watching too much of the block um the series mark here in australia um, one of the house shows um so they've got a larger enclosure so they can explore more which is a whole idea of environmental enrichment so yeah there are minimum recommended sizes for different species of reptiles um, in most regions of the world. Um, there's, there's legislative requirements, but we won't go through those. And often they are exactly that, Mark, aren't they? They're just a very bare minimum, and we typically recommend an enclosure much larger than the legal recommended minimum, Mark. So when was, um, enough know, on that topic. Yeah, it's not sorry. even nearly enough yet, Brendan. <laughs> when, we were, when we were developing those minimum sizes for the legislation in New South Wales, there was a lot of 
one particular point of controversy, and I do want to touch on it here, um, because many of the reptile yes. keepers would argue that they kept their snakes in these shoebox tubs in rats. Yes. And their argument was that this was this did mimic, you know, the snake didn't move around a lot all through the year and it did just stay in one hide. And this form of captive husbandry... Um, was appropriate. Now, I've had a couple of significant arguments with people that were, I considered them pretty close friends, um, where I do not think that's an acceptable way to keep them. I think that there is an element of um, of justification, uh, you know, that, that uh, people are justifying the way they keep them by misinterpreting some of the behaviours in the wild animals. But I also take on board the fact that uh, if you take a particularly a small snake and put them in a very big bear enclosure, um, that will be stressful. Um, and, um, and a big, big enclosure, it's much harder to monitor hatchling snakes' behaviour and its thermoregulatory habits um, than it is in a small enclosure. So I think... Um, trying to make them as big as possible is good, uh, but it does put more pressure on um, on people to watch them. And uh, I don't think that's a bad idea. Yes. No, great point. And I think it just means that the owner has to be much more careful about making sure those micro-environments for that small reptile in the large enclosure are appropriately set up, that they do have that little small room, as you put it, um, where they can feel secure and and happy in that area, yes. So, no, I agree totally, Mark. Um, dietary enrichment, Mark, do you want to well, chat about that? Well, dietary enrichment is often the area that um, that I, first of all, after we've talked about uh, perches and, and enclosure furniture, um, dietary enrichment is the uh, is my sort of next automatic take without um, uh, going into a whole bunch of other things. Um, and it is a, it has a little bit of um, complexity and controversy to it. Um, I like the idea that we try to give our reptiles as wide a variety of, uh, you know, if they're insectivorous, don't just depend on um, the relatively easily available, um, easily maintained um, mealworm larvae. Um, I think it's a good idea to have a wide range of, um, of uh, uh, cultivated um, insects, crickets and roaches and mealworms and silkworms. Um, but also I don't think it's a bad idea to... Um, we're pretty lucky here in Australia that we don't have toxic insects and we don't have huge parasite problems, though obviously if you feed wild-caught um, prey, there's always a chance of introducing... Uh, a, a parasite or a disease process from outside the enclosure. Um, but I think the benefit of that variety and the novel ways that different insects move, um, the way that that stimulates uh, predatory insectivorous species, those benefits vastly outweigh the relatively slight risk, Brendan. Yes, I agree 100% there, Mark. Um, so variety of them and also um, providing unique methods to access those insects, Mark. And I'm, I'm just reading the reason why I was hesitating there. They talk about insect dispensers, Mark, and I can picture, you know, this little um, spring flying the insect through the through the um, through the air once the snake taps taps a little plate with its um, 
tip of its nose there, Mark. But that's doing things like hiding the items within logs, um, fake logs um, with time release, um, they mentioned in this article. Um, I haven't seen those um, um, make, um, those sort of um, – have you seen those, Mark, where, where, where it's um, it has these – Probably has a little a little shoot that every now and again it opens up and lets a few of the insects out. Um, well, I think so. the good thing even now you can buy in pet stores um, enclosures those sort of like plastic tubs and they will have a relatively small um, uh, exit hole um, that allows maybe you know you can uh, dump twenty or thirty crickets in there and and just one will find its way out every few hours and I think those those um, that sort of system where uh, a prey item is released to the environment in the cage intermittently um, is is much better for the animals than having them all dumped in there all at once and um, and uh, and you know there's a big mad rush with two or three animals potentially biting and nipping each other. So it's, it's reverse natural selection, isn't it? There, so the smart ones get out and then they get eaten, and the dumb ones can't fight their way out of the maze. Um, and get to reproduce. <laughs> so, hey, I didn't think of it that way, but now you make the point. Yes. Oh, the smart so, ones probably taste better. Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps. Um, we won't go down that um, rabbit but, hole but, there, Mark. But I do, um, I do want to quickly touch on the fact that um, I th- you mentioned it before and it's a very, very wise thing that um, having some form of separate enclosure to supply these arrangements so that an animal would be transferred from its primary habitat with all the, the bells and whistles into a maybe slightly smaller and uh, spartan um, maybe with some of the same sorts of arrangements, but obviously um, uh, one of the things, a good example of bearded dragons, that uh, it's theorised that the manner in which crickets that may become free living in the enclosure consume faeces and concentrate organisms like coccidia, they may provide a little bit of a worsening, uh, you know, a, an amplification effect on the the uh, parasite problems in enclosures. And so I think it is balance we talked about before. You've got to make sure that you understand your uh, charge, the the animal you're looking after, and design the dietary enrichment in such a way that it doesn't uh, add to a, a parasite problem. Yes, and the other classic one there, and we've spoken about it with our turtle care series, Mark, and pre- in, in several podcasts is Chelonian, so the turtle, um, the feed the feed box or the um, where you take the turtle out of the aquarium, you place it in a little box with some of the water from the aquarium and then you place the feed in there. So not only is it not putting pressure on the filter system of the main aquarium, you also get to see whether or not the turtle has eaten the food placed in with it um, because some of them just rip apart the food but don't eat it and it's sucked up by the filter and the client would be thinking that it has eaten it. And thirdly, they, the vast majority of them, don't they? They they learn that they're conditioned. So they learn that, hey, I've been put in the feeding tank um, and they get fired up and very excited for a feed. Um, so, yeah, that's the other classic species that we tend to recommend that for. Um, and the, the other one I want to talk about, Mark, just briefly um, with, with um, feeding is using scent trails. And the picture that I will place... Um, 
on the website for this and we for those who've never visited the website but are still subscribers we put a picture relating to the topic well mostly um to the main topic every week is a king cob remote that i saw at at a san antonio zoo in the united states um where they did a scent trailing um exhibit um, um, for the vets that were visiting behind the scenes there where they took the king cobra off display and it was a it was a great display it was very similar to what we're talking about in this whole article here mark it was a really excuse me large enclosure for one one animal they took the king cobra off display they then had a thawed out chicken that the keeper physically hopped into the enclosure because it was that big this enclosure and he wandered around the enclosure with the chicken trailing behind him and through a hollow log and out the other end and you know this trail around around the whole enclosure and then he eventually hid the chicken in one distant corner of the enclosure and then they released the king cobra and it was just fascinating we um, well i certainly stayed some some the vets didn't but we it took took the cobra about 10 or 15 minutes to find the chicken but it literally followed the exact scent trail mark it was amazing um that the keeper had dragged the chicken along so yeah um so scent trailing is a great great um environmental enrichment and stimulating method of feeding snakes in particular and it is um you know that it obviously is much a bigger uh, advantage a, a technique that's much better if the enclosure has sufficient complexity like a lot of those tubs they just you know how complicated yes how can you hide it <laughs> but a decent sized enclosure that um that you know you can encourage uh, an animal to climb up a branch and search around and then come back down and find um the prey in the corner it doesn't have to you know uh a an enclosure that has substrate that may stick to a prey item, it may well be that um, you drag one around, it's discarded or uh, washed, um, and, a, and a completely fresh prey item is placed in the hiding spot to be found. Um, so there are ways around this to uh, make it work in less complicated places, but it definitely is um, a thing that I've seen that, um, that really, you know, I like the idea. You can see that... The uh, behaviour, the the use of the tongue, the use of the Jacobson's organ, the vomeronasal organ, the, these normal behaviours that are not necessarily stimulated to the same extent, um, you get it in this circumstance, and that's a great thing for the animal. Yes. Um, we're almost out of time, Mark, but I want you to briefly... And I mean briefly, go through um, the other sort of general topic they mention about in this article, novel enrichment and social enrichment. So if you can just briefly touch on using things like sheds of, of snakes or, or reptiles, um, social groups of reptiles, you know, what's your general recommendations about how many reptiles or what or should you keep different species of reptiles in an enclosure together? So mixed species and, and also the use of things like visual barriers? Well, I think, you know, we come from an animal health background um, and we look at things through the perspective of how easy they are to prevent disease. And there's no doubt that the sorts of novel enrichments that we're considering here, they do come with uh, risk. And so if we were to um, use the part of a shed um, that... Uh, 
um, you know, to place that in the enclosure and, and uh, have that stimulate um, activity in the, the animals that are in there, um, that comes with a certain risk. But if it's an animal from uh, our own collection and we have done all the um, appropriate testing and uh, the appropriate quarantine period and that animal is healthy, I think the risk, once again, is relatively low um, and the benefits are uh, significant. And so um, so similarly, if we have uh, uh, uh an animal that's not uh, doesn't present a contagious problem, and we take that uh, you know a piece of cage furniture, a, a piece of driftwood, or uh, one of the rocks, and move it to another enclosure, um, then the odors, particularly, I think we vastly underestimate the olfactory environment we place these animals in, and the stimulating effects of those uh, environments those olfactory environments. And so I think it's a good thing for us to try and stimulate those um, within the context of preventing disease. I think um, uh, this article talks about, the one we're talking about, talks about rotating animals into conspecific enclosures. Now, I think this is a good thing. I mean, we literally do this when we're breeding our pythons. We might keep them separate over the winter cooling period and put them into the same enclosure in the spring um, in an attempt to stimulate reproductive activity. And there's no doubt that that altered social environment and the altered uh, olfactory environment significantly increases their uh, behaviour, the type of behaviours they exhibit and the activities they, uh, um, they perform. So I think these are all good things to do. I don't know about um, sticking different species together. There are some very um, limited circumstances where I'd be happy to do that, um, but I think the differing immune systems of differing animals mean that we, we always run the risk of uh, an innocuous species um, being pathogenic for a, a, a cage cohort um, and so a cage um, cohabitant. So I think it's always good to be very careful there. And I think there are some species of um, colonial skinks, um, uh, particularly the Agurnia species here in Australia, who do well when they're kept in uh, small colonies and that allows them to exhibit interactions, social interactions, um, outside of um, uh, reproductive and feeding behaviours. Yes, and I think it's really only an advanced keeper or client that, that I would probably be chatting to them about put in different species together, Mark. I think it's really keep it simple for the majority of clients and you're asking for trouble trying to mix most uh, different species together unless they're advanced. Um, yeah. Um, I think we just about run out of time. There is one other thing I'll quickly mention and and, and it goes into more detail in, in the article, but I found it quite fascinating and it works very well and that's the use of behavioural training marks, so that's training the reptiles, and this is particularly applies to the venomous snakes, um, where you're encouraging them to use um, to to head into a little um, a box or a tube um, that you would be using to safely handle them, um, or squeezes those sorts of things, um, and doing it in a non-threatening way for the animal. So when the day does come that you need to put them into a little um, clear perspex tube in to gently and safely 
handle them that they've already been through that tube several times before so they're used to that that process there mark and um yeah it's a bit of an advanced sort of technique and it's but it is commonly and increasingly used in in zoos and larger collections in order to make it less stressful for the reptile there mark so yeah any any final comments you want mark the only last thing I was going to say, Brendan, was that I think um, while you and I have been talking about the various enrichments that we've um, suggested, I do think um, once you start talking to your clients about this stuff, they they often take off. They often come back at you with, well, those general principles, what about I apply them in this way? And I think that's a good thing for us as veterinarians to encourage um, that uh, we ask our clients to come back at us with... Uh, their suggestions for environmental enrichment um, and it is surprising how many of them come up with um, relatively ingenious and uh, novel ways to improve the quality of life of their reptile pets. Yes, although sometimes my clients come back at me in a different way, Mark. Um, We'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. for listening to the vet podcast by the vet gurus don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe view show notes listen to previous episodes and more you can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi thanks again and see you next time